Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Some people say it costs too much to be an environmentally responsible company, but we've found just the opposite. Like when we made our yogurt containers thinner, we reduced the fuel needed to ship them, which cut carbon emissions and costs. We're proud of the way we run our business and proud to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The meltdown at the Fukushima nuclear power plant contaminated a vast area of Japan. Now, a year later, cleaning up the radioactive mess gets underway. It's actually quite sticky. It initially is on the surface of leaves and buildings, and it eventually starts to be washed down into the soil. It really sticks to the soil. And then later on, it will even be absorbed into plants and the bodies of animals. Also, with nearly all its reactors shut down, Japan drills offshore, trying to tap a very unusual energy source. One reason we call it fiery ice or fire in the ice is that you can actually light this little chunk of icy material on fire and it will sustain the flame. But can fiery ice sustain Japan? These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It was a year ago, on March 11th, at precisely 2.46 in the afternoon, when the most powerful earthquake ever to hit Japan shook the earth for six terrifying minutes. Finally, it was over. The air was still and eerily calm. Then sirens began to wail, warning of a tsunami. Giant waves pounded Japan's Pacific coast, submerging the emergency backup generators at the Fukushima nuclear power plant, leading to a meltdown of spent radioactive fuel and reactors. Freelance journalist Winifred Bird lives 300 miles southwest of Fukushima. I turned on the TV, which is what I always do when there's an earthquake, and um, pretty soon these images started coming in of, you know, the little pre-tsunami waves kind of washing over the ports and it just kind of escalated and escalated and it took me maybe a few hours to realize that this wasn't your normal disaster. More than 16,000 people died and a million were evacuated from a 12-mile zone around the nuclear power plant as radiation spread. Now the Japanese government has decided to decontaminate the vast region and Winifred Bird writes about the Herculean effort in the online publication Yale Environment 360. The central government um, is in charge of decontaminating the evacuation area, which is about 1,000 square kilometers. About 500 square kilometers of that is very severely uh, contaminated. However, um, there's radioactive materials spread over a much larger area, so it all depends on how much people decide they want to clean up. So they've got this vast area that's contaminated. Um, What do they hope to do? How do they hope to decontaminate it? The methods vary depending on what you're decontaminating. It's mostly radio cesium that they're trying to clean up. Um, It's actually quite sticky. So it falls, you know, it falls down in rain uh, from the atmosphere. And it initially is on the surface of leaves and buildings. And it eventually starts to be washed down into the soil especially with clay soils. It really sticks to the soil. So say if you want to clean up a building, a concrete building, you can, say, um, spray it down or wipe it down. But if you're talking about cleaning up a forest, 
now we're getting into removing leaf litter, removing soil. You might even need to cut the branches off the trees or possibly even in some cases cut the whole tree down. So 80% of Fukushima Prefecture is covered in forests and farms. So you can't just ignore the forest and focus on towns only. Another issue is that Fukushima is very mountainous, as is much of Japan. So even if you have an isolated town uh, down in a valley and you have a forest up above it, you have the issue of contamination washing down continuously from the forested hillside. It's a huge problem and nobody has quite figured out what to do about it. But when you wash this stuff off, this sticky cesium, what do you do with the water? Right. So that's a big problem that the government and the contractors working on this have discovered as they start to experiment with different methods is essentially if you rely on washing down the surfaces of buildings and other artificial materials, you're just moving the contamination around in the environment. So you're moving it from a house into a river, ultimately into the ocean, or you're maybe moving it onto the neighbor's property. So they've come up with several possible solutions. One is wiping things down instead of washing. Another one is using a a vacuum at the same time as a sprayer. So it's kind of like when you go to the dentist and they they have the vacuum in your mouth (laughs) as they're putting the water in. Uh But obviously that's really hard to do on a huge scale. What a mess. What about the soil? Highly contaminated soil does need to be removed in large quantities. Um, The Ministry of Environment has estimated that between 15 and 31 million cubic meters of soil and debris will need to be removed from uh, Fukushima Prefecture. Um, And it's quite possible that that number could rise. It's a lot of soil. Where do you put it? So that's the problem. Um, Nobody wants this soil in their town long term. Um, Temporarily, you just kind of store it near where you've removed it, and that's where it is right now. But the government wants to create a mid-term storage facility somewhere within the contaminated, the highly contaminated area. This has got to be very, very expensive to clean up this contamination. Any idea, has the government said, how much it could cost? Well, the government has already allotted over 1 trillion yen, which is about 12 or 13 billion dollars. And I expect that the costs will exceed that significantly. How does um, Fukushima's fallout compare to Chernobyl's? The amount of radionuclides released is quite a bit smaller. The most recent estimate was about 20 percent of what was emitted from Chernobyl. But one of the big differences is that After the Chernobyl disaster, um, the government permanently moved the residents from, um, I think it's a 19-mile radius around the um, damaged nuclear power plant. And aside from cleaning up roads and towns in that area, they pretty much gave up on the idea of cleaning up the farmland and forests. Yeah, it became an exclusionary zone. That's right. And it still is today, over 25 years later. In Japan, the Japanese government doesn't want to do that. Um, There's not a ton of area to resettle people. So the government wants as much as possible to clean up the contamination and move people back into that area. How are the Japanese people reacting to these efforts? Do they have confidence that the decontamination efforts are going to work? I think a lot of people are extremely skeptical Uh, A huge amount of trust in the government and in industry has been lost 
as a result of this disaster. Evacuees who I've talked to who used to live quite close to the nuclear plant have told me that they no longer want to move back no matter what the government does or says because they don't trust in those promises. So I think that one of the main things the government is going to have to work on is building back some semblance of credibility with the public. Winifred, thank you so very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Winifred Bird is a freelance journalist living in Japan. Well, since the disaster, Japan has pulled the plug on all but two of its 53 nuclear reactors. The nation has always been energy poor. It imports 95% of its fuel. But for the past decade, Japan has been investigating a very unconventional energy source in the sea just off the coast. And now experimental drilling designed to commercialize what is known as methane hydrate is picking up speed, promising a new source of energy not just for Japan, but the world. Carolyn Ruppel of the U.S. Geological Survey at Woods Hole, Massachusetts, studies methane hydrate, which some call fiery ice. One reason we call it fiery ice or fire in the ice is that you can actually light this little chunk of icy material on fire and it will sustain the flame. If you see them in sort of concentrated form, they look like little chunks of ice. And sometimes if you put them on your hand, they will fizz because they're releasing the methane. They are not stable at normal pressures and temperatures. So it's releasing its methane. These crystals of ice Mm -hmm. contain and lock in a lot of methane. Right. The way to think about it is if you have one cubic meter of methane hydrate, if you were to break that down at sort of our atmospheric pressure and temperature conditions, you would get about 164 cubic meters of methane, essentially a very concentrated form of methane. So methane, natural gas. It's natural gas, but it's natural gas that is trapped within this form that concentrates it. And there's a lot of this methane hydrates in the world. Right. And there's still, even today, after many decades of study, there's still a lot of controversy about how much there is. But it is very substantial. I heard that uh, maybe a thousand years worth of natural gas, methane, at current consumption worldwide. Some people say hundred. Some people say a thousand. Well, how could we mine this? Could we mine them? What you probably want to do is stimulate the formation to release the gas. So ways to do that might be to depressurize the formation. It's under pressure and take the pressure off. The other method that has been actually attempted is to heat the formation up, and that way you could produce the method. What are they using in Japan in these experimental wells that they hope to turn into commercial wells? What they're doing now is they're starting to drill the series of wells that will be necessary to get to the point of doing a long-term production test. And what a long-term production test would mean is proving that the amount of methane hydrate down there and the rate at which you could produce methane from it would make this a viable resource. The United States has projects on the north slope of Alaska to find out if we have these methane hydrates and we can exploit them. And we know they have them there, right? We know we have them. And the more critical question is how and if we can exploit them. Ultimately, the questions we're all looking at would be what are the best ways to exploit them? And is it economically feasible to get to the point that gas hydrates become part of the, the total natural gas supply for the U.S.? I understand that one of the richest places on the planet is in the Gulf of Mexico. In terms of gas hydrate concentrations, from what we found so far, there are some very high 
saturation deposits within the Gulf of Mexico. We should say that methane, natural gas, is a very potent greenhouse gas. It is a very potent greenhouse gas. It's, a, it's estimated to be 15 to 20 times more potent than uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. But the concentration of CO2 is obviously much, much higher than methane. If I were a drilling company in the Gulf of Mexico and I was drilling down through these methane hydrates mm-hmm. layers mm-hmm. and causing them to disrupt, could that cause a problem? Well, we don't have any published evidence that there has been any kind of failure or problem related to drilling through gas hydrates. But certainly, there needs to be a lot more work done on these hazards. Do you think a mistake in drilling could trigger climate problem? No. You know, when we're drilling, it's it's a discrete borehole that's being made in the ground. And so that is unlikely to cause a methane release so large that this would have an impact. The other thing to remember is that, um, particularly with deep water drilling, that methane, when it's released, goes into this huge pool of the ocean where the ocean is very undersaturated. So mostly it dissolves in the ocean. That may not be so good for the ocean, but it's not usually a freight train to get that gas directly out into the atmosphere. So you think we can manage the risks? I don't think there really are large risks to worry about with the production. I was surprised to hear you say that because I've been reading about this and they talk about geohazards from mm-hmm. methane hydrates. Right. Let me go through a couple of them. One would be a climate change. 55 million years ago, they say there was a, a large-scale disruption of the methane in the ocean mm-hmm. and it caused basically mass extinction of marine life. Yes, that's one explanation for a period for this mass extinction event, and also uh, there was a a large warming event. But I think it's important to make a distinction here between so-called geohazards, which are hazards like climate change or uh, submarine slope failure, which is another uh, hazard that has sometimes been attributed to gas hydrates. It's important to make a distinction between those kinds of hazards and hazards that might be related to drilling or producing in these deposits. Well, you talked about this basically landslides in the ocean. Which occur in the ocean sometimes, yes. Because of the disruption of methane hydrates. Well, I think it's very unlikely that gas hydrates themselves trigger the landslide, but they may precondition these slopes for failure if there's an outside triggering event. So... An earthquake. If you had an earthquake, it would disrupt the methane hydrates. Or the associated free gas, yes, and potentially destabilize a slope, right? Causing a tidal wave? That has also been postulated. But the problem is, again, after a slide has already occurred, we have very little proof of what caused the slide. So Japan has a very ambitious program right now. Relative to the United States, how big is it compared to what we're doing? Well, the total spending in the U.S. since about 1999 has probably been about $130 million. In the Japan, the project they've undertaken now, the investment is about $1 billion. And that's from sort of doing the, what we call the geotechnical wells through the, the production tests. But, uh, Japan has the compelling forces of urgent necessity. They're, they're... Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you were an optimistic person, I'm guessing you are, When do you think we could start mining this if it was economically feasible? Well, Japan may be there in a decade easily. Uh, Let's let's talk about the U.S. We're probably talking 15 years before we'd start being able to add that to the natural gas stream. 
There is one important thing to note, which is that natural gas has the same problem in many places, which is it has to be near a way to move the natural gas. So here's a situation where the natural gas may be sitting in deep water environments very far from the coast or in Alaska, and you have the same problem again. Natural gas, in that sense, is natural gas. Well, Dr. Rupel, thank you so very much for coming in. It's my pleasure. Carolyn Rupel is a research geophysicist with the Gas Hydrates Project at the U.S. Geological Survey at Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Just ahead, studying tsunamis in a swimming pool. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Tsunamis can be triggered by earthquakes, undersea landslides, even meteorites striking the ocean. Thankfully, tsunamis are rare, but when they do strike, they can be deadly. In 2004, giant tsunami waves smashed into Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, and Thailand, killing nearly a quarter of a million people. U.S. scientists warn the Cascade Fault Line under the sea along the Pacific Northwest is overdue for a massive quake and fear that could trigger a tsunami along the U.S.-Canadian coastline. To prepare, the National Tsunami Hazard Mitigation Program provides evacuation maps, emergency training, and educational materials. This is one of its videos. It can be many miles long, from 1 to 100 feet high, traveling at 400 miles per hour. This ocean monster is known as a tsunami, and it can wreak havoc on coastal populations and landscapes. Tsunamis can strike any coastline in the world and can affect locations thousands of miles away from where they formed. They may be uncommon, but the devastation they cause makes them a deadly force in nature. But forces within the federal budget may prove a match for the U.S. Tsunami Hazard Mitigation Program. President Obama proposes cutting nearly $5 million in its funding next year. Yet even in the best of times, studying tsunamis is difficult. Catching the rare waves at sea is tough, so researchers at Oregon State University are creating tsunamis in special swimming pools. From IEEE Spectrum's program Responding to Disasters, from Prediction to Recovery, Lawrence Summer reports. Just off campus at Oregon State University, there's a large warehouse that's home to what looks like an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So this is a tsunami wave basin here. It's, you know, 160 feet long, 100 feet wide. Herman Fritz is an associate professor of civil and environmental engineering at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He's here in Oregon with a team of students to do one thing, make tsunamis. Right now there's uh, four feet of water in the basin. Well, with four feet of water, they're making miniature tsunamis, but that's the whole idea. This wave basin simulates tsunamis, which in the real world are incredibly destructive. So you can see here the conical island, which is similar to an island in Hawaii or in the Caribbean. Fritz and his team built the island in the center of the pool. They're using it to simulate a very specific kind of tsunami, those generated by landslides. So it's a little bit like a uh, volcano that's collapsing and producing a uh, tsunami wave. 
When an eruption or earthquake occurs on the coast, it can send a massive amount of debris into the ocean, which creates a tsunami wave. These tsunamis are often much larger than normal. They're mega tsunamis, and as a result, much deadlier. Because of course, uh, Krakatoa volcano in Indonesia is a famous volcanic explosion and then uh, engulfment collapse of an entire volcanic island. That caused 36,000 fatalities in 1883. But landslide-generated tsunamis are relatively rare. Fritz is the first to simulate how they work. The landslide in this experiment is simulated with 3,000 pounds of gravel. The team is loading it from an overhead crane into a sort of man-made landslide generator that's sitting on the island. It's basically a large bin that fires gravel down the side of the island and into the water when the time is right. Coming down in 15 seconds! And that time is now. The gravel shoots into the water, sending waves across the pool. The waves are being recorded by high-speed video cameras and by gauges that measure the height. Fritz and his students gather around computer monitors to watch the data come in. There's a little bit of noise at the beginning. You can see kind of nice waves uh, over most of it, but at the very beginning there's a little bit of a spark here. On a good day, they'll run the simulation up to eight times. It's pretty exciting to see the, the wave propagate around the cone and then collide on the backside. Georgia Tech PhD student Brian McFall is talking about one of the stranger effects they're studying. Say a tsunami is headed toward your island. It seems like it's so intuitive. Oh, the wave's coming from the north. Let me get to the south side of the island. Not necessarily uh, isn't, isn't really the best idea, even though it seems like you want to be as far away from it as possible. You're actually going to get hit a lot harder than if you're on the sides. That's because once the tsunami hits the island, the waves wrap around both sides and collide at the back, combining their energy. That creates a larger wave, which runs up onto the land and makes the backside of the island one of the worst places to be. Herman Fritz says this kind of data can be used to update tsunami hazard maps, which today don't include risks from landslide-generated tsunamis. That's just one of the gaps that tsunami researchers are trying to fill. So the main problem is in tsunami research, there are very few benchmark cases out there that you have with data. Historically, researchers have had little data about tsunamis in action. And up to 2004, there were almost no even videos or photos of tsunamis. So the tsunami was kind of this, uh, this almost unseen hazard that can destroy entire coastlines. Fritz says their miniature tsunami experiments tell them about the basic dynamics of tsunami waves. That data can be used in sophisticated computer models, which can forecast where tsunamis might happen and what their impact will be. Of course, tsunami researchers still try to observe real events. Fritz is often part of a research team that rushes to sites where tsunamis have hit. We try to get the uh, ephemeral information, the perishable data, the things that go away. And when we go right after the event, we try to get watermarks, so just to see how high the water was. The data they collect helps tsunami researchers model future tsunamis more accurately. And recently, he's been busy. Well, I've been to the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004 as a very large event, and then uh, to several of smaller events in Indonesia, Java 2006, South Pacific, Solomon Islands 2007, and Samoa 2009. While most of these tsunamis didn't make the headlines, the devastating 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami certainly did. Combined, the events caused more than 200,000 deaths. 
Banda Arch is a huge city, was essentially wiped out. And so it's a very large area of total destruction. The human scale kind of gets lost when once you have a field of destruction that's so big. For the first time, the world witnessed the devastating power of a major tsunami in action through the videos and photos that were shot as the wave advanced. What those images showed was a relentless wall of water. Tsunami waves are astonishingly long, and when they hit land, Fritz says it's like a car hitting a wall. So the front slows down while the back is still pushing, and the wavelength is getting shorter and shorter, and the wave height gets higher and higher. Against that kind of power, coastal communities have two main defenses, warning and evacuation. Well, warning systems are primarily designed for field events, for events where, for example, you have an earthquake in Alaska, and then you have four hours until the tsunami waves reaches Hawaii. But for coastal communities close to the earthquake's epicenter, a warning may not provide enough time. So there's very little time between when the earthquake happens and when the wave arrives. And that can be, uh, it's typically on the order of 15 to 30 minutes in most places. But in some cases, it can even be as short as five minutes in extreme scenarios. And then there is really no time. Fritz says that's where public education comes in. And the rule is pretty simple. For local residents, the rule is typically if you feel the earthquake and it was on for more than 30 seconds, or if you see the, uh, the water surface withdraw, then you should evacuate. Public education proved to be critical during the recent earthquake and tsunami in Japan. So we turn on the TV about 5 to 10, and there's something going on. Harry Yeh is a professor of coastal and ocean engineering at Oregon State University. On the evening of March 11th, he was settling in to watch a cooking show with his wife. You know, I'm half Japanese, and I grew up in Japan, and my wife is Japanese, so we have Japanese TV. As soon as Ye saw the size of the earthquake, he braced himself for the worst. There's no doubt there's a tsunami is coming, significant tsunami is coming, but we do not know how big. Ye says Japan is no stranger to tsunamis, and the evacuation following the quake certainly saved lives. Still, around 20,000 people died. In the coastal community... Because they are wealthy society, they build the buildings with reinforced concrete. So in Japan, people told if tsunami happened, if the higher ground is not nearby, get into the uh, concrete building, climb up to the fourth stories. And that's why lots of people save their lives, but not all. That's because in some cases, the tsunami went above the fourth floor. That was a sad story. But that's some lesson we should learn. Japan's past history of tsunamis has helped the country prepare for disasters. But it can also get in the way. You know, they build sea walls to protect the small coastal communities. But those are based upon the experience. Experience of the 1933 tsunami and the 1896 tsunamis. Ye was part of a team that surveyed the damage after the tsunami. He says it's given them an unprecedented look at how modern buildings survive in a disaster of that scale. It's also made him rethink building codes that he's contributed to, like the ones for tsunami evacuation centers for people who can't reach higher ground. Well, if it's building is built by reinforced concrete, you know, it's probably 95 percent safe. Case closed. But in Japan, Ye saw entire concrete buildings toppled over, completely on their side. He believes the earthquake could have liquefied the soil under the buildings, making their foundations fail. Also, the tsunami may have trapped air inside the buildings, making them more buoyant. Reinforced concrete structure is always standing if you go to the site. That was not the case. 
Ye believes that studies in Japan will be especially relevant in Oregon and Washington, where the tsunami risk is among the highest in the country. What researchers learn will improve building codes and tsunami risk maps, and ultimately save lives. I'm Lauren Summer. Our tsunami story is part of the IEEE Spectrum National Science Foundation program, Responding to Disasters from Prediction to Recovery. For more information, go to our website, LOE.org. Now, there's a fly-by-night bird that perhaps you should give a hoot about. Mary McCann of BirdNote has a word to the wise. We often think of spring as the nesting season for birds. But great horned owls nest in winter because young owls take a long time to grow up. This pair occupies a large stick nest in a tall cottonwood, a nest that red-tailed hawks built last year. The female great horned owl, which outweighs the male by a third, incubated her eggs for a full month, never leaving the nest. The male owl hunted for both. When the eggs hatched, the downy owlets were the size of newborn chickens. The male remained the sole provider for another two weeks until the young put on a second set of down feathers. Now, the young can be left alone while both adult great horned owls resume hunting at twilight. From elevated perches, they plunge with silent wings into prey below. They take mice, rabbits, and opossums, ducks and crows, even skunks and young raccoons. The young owls will remain with their parents for several months, and because the cycle started in winter, the young will have an abundance of prey when they are finally on their own. I'm Mary McCann. To see some photos of great horned owls, swoop on over to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, urban deforestation leaves U.S. cities with fewer trees and us with problems. They clean the air. They help clean the water by intercepting water and and reducing runoff. They take in carbon dioxide. If they shade buildings and reduce air temperatures in cities, it has huge impacts on energy use. But America's hardworking city trees are in trouble. That next. So stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Just ahead, feasting on urban forests. But first, this note on emerging science from Sophie Golden. For many species around the world, climate change has meant a turn for the worse. But for the wandering albatross, it's been a boon, at least for now. Researchers have been studying the breeding habits of a colony of wandering albatross in the Crozet Islands for over 40 years. Now scientists at the Helmholtz Center for Environmental Research in Germany are looking at the effects of climate change on the species. 
The Crozet Islands are in one of the windiest places in the Southern Ocean, and the changing climate has boosted the power of the westerly winds and shifted them south. And the albatross have followed. The stronger winds allow the birds to fly faster, covering more ocean in less time. And shorter trips mean more time at home with the kids. Both male and female albatross split time between foraging for food and nesting. Shorter shifts on the nest lead to fewer breeding failures and an increase in population. And population is not the only thing that has increased. The average weight of both the male and female albatross has gone up by over two pounds in the last 20 years. Researchers believe this could be due to less time spent on the nest, or an evolutionary response to the windier conditions. As quickly as the albatross can adapt, the winds can change, and they might bring new problems in the next gust. But for now, the albatross can enjoy the benefits of a changing planet. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Sophie Golden. U.S. forest researcher David Nowak says he thinks he'll never see a harder worker than an urban tree. As Nowak tells it, not only do tree roots and leaves clean our air and water, the canopies cut energy costs, lower our fast-paced urban stress levels, and beautify our cities. Problem is, America is losing its urban forests. According to Nowak, last year alone, our cities lost about four million trees. David Nowak joins me from his office at the U.S. Forest Service's Northern Research Station in Syracuse, New York. Hey, David, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks, Bruce. Great to be here. So, how do you know uh, that we're losing so many trees? Well, we looked at、uh, historical imagery from the last five years or so for various cities and across the United States, and looked at、uh, what we call paired image analysis to compare what cover was, say, five years ago, and what cover is today. And we're showing that most of the cities in the country are showing a decline in urban tree cover. What's happening to the trees? Oh, it could be a whole bunch of things. We really don't know exactly what it is. This trend of loss is both trees coming in and trees going out. So people are planting trees. Trees are naturally regenerating, but we're also losing trees to old age, to maybe insects and diseases, and through the development. And the net change is what we were looking at. It's a trend of going downward. So you looked at twenty、uh, U.S. cities. Yes. And what's the trend in terms of numbers? It's dropping at about, say, approximately 0.3 percent of the city area per year on average. The big loser, obviously, which we expected, was New Orleans because we targeted New Orleans specifically to pick imagery just before the hurricane and then about five years after the hurricane. The other big losers were Houston, Albuquerque, Baltimore, and Atlanta. So, do we know why Houston, Albuquerque,、uh, Baltimore, Atlanta, why they might have lost trees? It's a combination of those natural factors of insects and diseases and Human factors of development or people's choices. So none of these twenty cities that you studied, none of them had an increase in the number of trees. No, one city did. Oh, the city of Syracuse was one city, but had a one percent increase in canopy cover. And the reason Syracuse has gone up is because of an invasive shrub,、uh, European buckthorn, has almost tripled in population in the last five to ten years. Syracuse had a, a Labor Day storm in 1998 that took out a lot of trees, so it created more space. So our theory partly is that some of this Open space that was created after the storm. We have this buckthorn in there that tends to be invading some of these sites. But a shrub is not a tree. Well, it depends how you classify a tree or a shrub. Because if you look in the literature, a lot of these plants are classified as large shrub or small tree. So, by our definition, 
So if it has a diameter at about four and a half feet of at least one inch across, we classify it as a tree in the woody class, which would be a large shrub or a small tree. Well, as I said in my introduction, it seems that urban forests are the hardest working trees in the country, at least according to the the chief of the U.S. Forest Service. How hard do they work? What do they do? They clean the air. They help clean the water by intercepting water and, and reducing runoff. They take in carbon dioxide. If they shade buildings and reduce air temperatures in cities, it has huge impacts on energy use within urban areas. They produce wildlife habitat. They have effects on human health in terms of uh, both by changing air quality and in terms of people just viewing vegetation and how our body responds to seeing the vegetation. We become more relaxed. So, David Nowak, I was looking at a study about New York City going back to 2006, and it found that the value to the city was about $122 million. That's $209 a tree in terms of carbon sequestration and flood control, that kind of thing. Sound about right? It sounds reasonable because there are many services that trees provide, and many of them we can't even quantify. I mean, some of the more direct ones, energy use is fairly direct. Pollution is more difficult, and carbon and effects on water. So there's all these services that come from one plant or one plant system that uh, a whole multitude of benefits. So it, it sounds like a reasonable number. Now, if you don't have a tree, what you have then is um, kind of bare ground, and you can have um, grass, and you can have what you call impervious cover. That would be things like sidewalks, uh, roads, that kind of thing? Yes. It has to do with you know population densities and how the cities are structured in terms of where the people reside. If you pack a lot of people in and a lot of infrastructure, you tend to increase the impervious surface. What's the most tree-covered city in the United States? That's a good question. The, uh, I, I don't know offhand because we haven't analyzed every city. On average, the states that have the greatest amount of tree cover in urban areas tend to be Massachusetts and Connecticut. They tend to have, on average, uh, over 60% canopy cover within their urban areas, which is fairly high. But for an individual city, some of the cities down south have significant amounts of tree cover. Atlanta had 52%. Nashville had near 50% also, so they, those have significant amounts of cover. What can the average person do about the loss of trees? I mean, okay, I can plant a tree, I suppose, right? You can plant a tree. You can allow natural regeneration to occur. There's often reasons why trees don't come in, particularly in the East Coast of the United States. We prevent trees from coming in. We mow our lawn. We put impervious surfaces down. Uh, More importantly, we can understand what our forest is and what it's doing so we can get better information about the system that we live within, this nature in our backyards. What type of species do we have in the cities? What are these services are provided? And how many trees do we actually need to plant to sustain cover into the future? Uh, We've built a tool called iTree that's out there for free to help people measure their forest and understand some of these services that it provides. iTree? iTree. It helps you calculate. You can do, you can sketch an iTree design, your house in your backyard online and put a tree around there and get a quick estimate of benefits in terms of energy conservation, other benefits that it provides. With the new app that will be coming out this spring, you can actually use your smartphone and, and collect data in the field and then download it into the computer program. And it takes in local weather data, local pollution data, and simulates some of these ecosystem services that we talked about. So we believe that having data on your local area is very important to develop management plans and structures to help improve the forest through time. We're hoping to get people to measure and engage school kids and homeowners to understand their landscape and make decisions for a better future. Well, David, thank you so very much. Thanks, Bruce. It's been great. David Nowak is with the U.S. Forest Service in Syracuse, New York. Well, about 200 years ago, John Chapman made a name for himself by walking the Ohio River Valley, preaching the gospel and planting orchards along the way. In doing so, Johnny Appleseed passed along food for thought and created forests that frontier folk could feast on. 
And today, city dwellers in Seattle are likewise spreading the word and preparing to plant seeds and seedlings to create an urban food forest. In the Beacon Hill neighborhood overlooking the Seattle skyline, Jenny Pell is helping residents of the community convert a seven-acre plot of city grass into a forest Johnny Appleseed would eat up. And if things work out, so will a lot of locals. Jenny Pell is a permaculturalist specializing in creating sustainable community landscapes and designer of the Beacon Hill Food Forest. Welcome to Living on Earth. Great. It's great to be here. So what's a food forest? Well, a food forest is a system that we designed to mimic a natural forest ecosystem. So we're trying to fill in those same um, elements of a natural forest with things that are edible, useful. We're looking at big overstory canopy trees, smaller trees that fit into that, going down to a shrub layer, down to sort of a herbaceous layer and ground cover, and all the way down into the rhizosphere, into the root zone. So things like uh, mushrooms, vines, herbs, berries, nuts, that kind of thing? Absolutely, yeah. In this project, this food forest, when we met with all the different people from the community, what they wanted absolutely was fruits and berries and big nut trees. That was their biggest request. So we're looking at paths with berry bushes on both sides, and we're going to have mixed fruit orchards and big nut orchards. And one of the nut orchards I'm designing has a very specific Asian tilt to it, so it's going to have big overstory sweet chestnuts, and the understory will have persimmons and mulberries and Chinese haws, and then the going down into the lower zone will be really familiar herb and uh, lower plants from the Asian palate. How do you design, how do you mimic a forest without turning it into something, you know, that Disney would like? <laughs> well, I don't know that it would be bad if Disney liked it. Can you design something that's natural? You can so we're really good at picking things that are going to play well together. So we're going to see that the overstory canopy tree is going to let in a little bit of shade, which is going to allow this next thing to grow. And then on the edge, we're going to have a whole lot of sun, but the larger trees behind it are going to shelter it from aggressive winds and things like that. And then when we step back, those plants are going to grow in their own relationships. Nature kind of takes over at that point. This seems as much um, philosophy as farming. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Permaculture is an ethical framework with a lot of principles that give us a design methodology, really trying to get to sustainable, resilient human communities and also embed the skills in the community, invite people back into that process, get people excited about learning skills. In terms of the one in Seattle, what kind of skills will these people need and who are they that are going to build this? This neighborhood is a really fascinating neighborhood. It's one of the most ethnically diverse zip codes in the United States. And so we have folks who are Latino. We have folks um, from many different Asian countries. We have African-Americans. We have recent African immigrants. uh, Really, really different folks living there. Can anybody kind of walk in and feast on your forest? For the private garden plots, those are really people's individual vegetable gardens. And no, we don't want anybody helping themselves to those. But for the rest of the garden, the invitation, again, is going to be this garden takes work, and you certainly are welcome to help yourself to some. And if you want to get involved in bigger harvests, come on harvest day and help out. That'll be pruning the trees, mulching the trees. That'll be propagating from some of the plants. So we're hoping that people will come in and, for example, help cut the raspberries back and then take home five or ten raspberry plants to put in their own backyard. People have been signing up by the score with the comments like, 
put me to work. I can't wait to get my hands dirty. Uh, let me know when I can show up with my wheelbarrow. Now, as I understand it, this is going to be the largest food forest of its kind. That's not entirely true. It'll be the largest food forest on public lands in the United States. So food forests are, are not new. There are really large food forests in other parts of the world. That is one I've seen a video on that's in the Middle East that's a 2,000-year-old food forest with overstory date palms and bananas and persimmons and citrus, and it's pretty amazing. But it's been continually managed over time for 2,000 years. So I think what's captured people's imagination so much about this project worldwide is that it's so solutions-oriented and it's so accessible. So Jenny Pell, fast forward 2,000 years, you come back to the Beacon Food Forest. Is it still going to be there? Let's jump forward 2,000 years. Uh, Let's jump forward 20 years first. What I would like to see there is that this food forest, I'm going to call it one of the living genetic banks of really valuable material in the Pacific Northwest. And what I'd like to see that is kind of a seed nursery or a plant nursery that's going to propagate and spread well beyond the borders of that food forest. That I can imagine just sort of blossoming all across the Seattle landscape. Also, in a lot of ways, this park is intended to serve the local neighborhood. We already recognize that it's going to become a destination for people. Other people are going to come and want to look at it and maybe replicate it. So what pieces of this are going to inspire people to take it and make it their own? Jenny, you got a a forest in your backyard? I'm renting a house right now, but what I do have is a young food, kind of mixed annuals and perennials garden in the parking strip. Seattle, a couple years ago, had the Year of Urban Agriculture, and they gave up all the parking strips. If you want to grow food in them, you can grow anything you want. So I put in berries and fruit trees, and you name it, I got it growing. I'm coming to your house. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) Yeah, we grow a lot of food. I mean, we grow food year-round in my garden here in Seattle. Permaculture expert Jenny Pell is designer of the Beacon Food Forest in Seattle, Washington. Well, Jenny Pell, thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure. The beluga is known as the white whale because of its color and the sea canary because of its high-pitched songs. The belugas prey for polar bears, killer whales, and Arctic people and it's under threat from pollution and industrial development. The population down by half in just 15 years. Hudson Bay in Canada is one of the last strongholds of the beluga, and it's there that writer Mark Seth Lender got up close and personal with a snow-white whale. From the crow's nest, Hudson Bay is all aglow, green as the land. Plowed by flukes and pectoral fins, the surface churns in lazy, furrowed rows. The hours grow short, the day drifts, the season of sun is coming to an end. There she blows, white whale, we tack toward the spray. Less than a fathom down, herded close in the wavy light that bathes their spouts and warms their bones, steady and slow, on the black ground of the sea, calved from snow and floating ice, these are the full-grown. Between them, all in gray, are the young and the very young who cling at the breast that is full as a world. 
From the low boat I watch whales rove, their backs rise like half-moons and their spray rainbows. There she sounds. Hudson Bay, opaque blue, rough as a cooper's file. Weather crowds her now, a hard peace abounds. In hood and dry suit I tumble in, I impatient, face buried in the coal cellar dark of water. Only the perilous emptiness now, not one wail. It is said if you sing to the wail, wails will come and sing in reply. I give them opera and drown tones, and as the notes drift down, shadows play below, and at the second stanza I am surrounded, and if I stop they leave, and if I sing they stay and now sing back to me. Then, with no warning, as if to mark and take my measure, a wail takes the fingers of my right hand gentle into her mouth and lets me go. Now the Arctic winter sets and the pack ice grows thick as rock, pressure-ridged into giant loaves, and I think of that parting kiss and wonder if she dives to great depth and with that same mouth rips squid pod from limb and tears the codfish from his fins or swallows them whole. Or is she now among the eyeless carcasses I've seen, belugas stripped of their fat, and the meat left to rot on the bone. Mark Seth Lender is the author of Salt Marsh Diary, a year on the Connecticut coast. There's an underwater video of the belugas Mark encountered at our website, LOE.org. We leave you this week on an island off the east coast of Africa. This is the song of the Madagascar Flufftail. The secretive birds with short tails hail from the rail family and are endemic to the island. Flufftails roam far and wide and are not picky about their habitat. Grasslands, rainforests, marshes, or any old rice paddy will do. That's the Madagascar flufftail. Now listen to the slender billed flufftail. The bird's call is distinctive, but the slender build is difficult to see. These flufftails seem to favor swamps and farmland, and they're threatened by habitat loss. Both flufftail calls are on the British Library CD, Bird Sounds of Madagascar, an audio guide to the island's unique birds. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Jessica Elise Kern, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, and Ike Shreeskandaraja. With help from Sarah Calkins, Megan Minor, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Mary Bates and Sophie Golden. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Alice and Lurish Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the Living on Earth Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. 
And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's just one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Paxworld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.